Well, the New Zealand Prime Minister summed it up pretty well, didn't she? When she said, a frankly terrible year. Uh, the nightmare that has been 2020. So it began with fears of World War Three breaking out, with tensions escalating between the US and Iran. Then we had mega bushfires which ravaged, ravaged Australia. Covid, George Floyd, locust plagues in Africa. Worst year of your life so far? I guess probably for most of us. And some refuse to even switch on the news anymore, that they it's just too much. We long, don't we, for some good news. And yes, there are things like the good news movement, uh, which try to lift our spirits with something positive. Uh, but it's also small scale, isn't it? It's just personal stories. So videos of someone doing something kind for somebody else, uh, someone in need. So uh, a man drawing out a racetrack on his driveway for a neighbour's kid to cycle on. And, you know, it, it's sweet, but we need something bigger. Uh, we long for good news on a global scale, something as big, uh, as big scale as the bad news. Well, that's why Mark's Gospel is such a timely book for us to be starting to go through in these difficult days, uh, because it's good news. And that's the first point that you'll see on the outline. The Christian message is good news. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The English word gospel is translating a Greek word, evangelion, and it means good news. Nowadays, we tend to think of gospel as a type of literature, don't we? So, in the New Testament, there are there are letters, and then there are four Gospels. But back then, Gospel simply meant good news. It comes up three times in the passage I just read. So verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel, or the good news of God. And verse 15, repent and believe the Gospel, the good news. So the Christian message is good news. William Tyndale uh, became a leading figure in the Reformation in the 14 and 1500s. And this guy, um, he could speak seven languages fluently and he was an expert in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, so he was quite a guy. And he was the first person to translate, the, uh, translate and print the New Testament in English. He wrote this. Evangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word that signifieth good, merry, glad and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance and leap for joy. Well, the Christian message is that kind of good news. It's such good news that it should make us sing, dance and leap for joy. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, uh, that might come as something of a surprise. You may be thinking, well, isn't the Christian message just about going to church on Sunday mornings instead of having a lion and not doing things you really want to do? And don't people say that religion is evil? It doesn't sound like good news. Well, stay tuned, because clearly the Christian message is different to what you thought. And for those of us who are Christian already, if the Christian message doesn't make us sing, dance and leap for joy... It may be because we've lost sight of how good 
the good news is. Perhaps it's become too familiar. Perhaps we've drifted away from the heart of it. And if so, a good prayer to pray would be that through studying Mark, the Lord would rekindle our joy in the wonder of the good news. So the Christian message is good news, and it's good news for the world. In the first century, the word gospel was used of public proclamations, which affected everyone, so momentous events, things like victories in war, a birth of the emperor, headline stuff. And the Christian message is that kind of good news. So it's not just personal good news. You know, you've got a pay rise, you've got a promotion, uh, you've got tested negative for COVID, or you're going on holiday. It's global good news. It's good news that everyone needs to hear. And so in this frankly terrible year, the Christian message is what we and what our world needs. Global good news. If you're feeling weighed down by the news cycles, uh, this is something to focus on again. And the more we see how good it is, the more we will want to share it with others. I cycled past a van uh, the other day, on the side of which it said, Pastor Evangelists. Uh, I looked them up when I got home, I'd never heard of them. And basically they send you everything you need to make restaurant quality pastor meals at home. Why do they call themselves evangelists? Well, an evangelist is someone who tells others the evangel, the good news. So these guys are passionate about pastor, and that's their good news that they want to share with others. But when a person comes to understand how wonderful the good news is about Jesus, they want to share that. Not pastor evangelists, but Jesus evangelists. So the Christian message is good news, but what is this good news? Well, the good news is that God's King has now come. That's our second point. These opening verses uh, record the testimony of various witnesses, uh, like in a courtroom. And the first witness up is Mark, and he testifies that Jesus is the Rescuer King. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Mark wrote this account, but early Christian writers tell us that it was written by John Mark, the guy who features in Acts. We learn in Acts that the early church met in his house in Jerusalem. He knew the apostles well, so he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and he served with Peter in Rome. These early Christian writers tell us that although Mark wasn't himself an eyewitness of Jesus, he wrote his account from what Peter the Apostle taught in Rome, and that he wrote this account for Gentile Christians in Rome in the mid-60s during the persecutions under Nero. It's the earliest and the shortest of the four gospel accounts. And Mark's testimony is there in the very first verse, which could be a title for the whole book. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news is about Jesus. And we learn three things here about this person who is the heart of the good news. Firstly, he's called Jesus. Jesus was a, a common name in the first century, but it has a particular significance in this case. It means 
the Lord saves. Jesus would bring God's rescue. Secondly, he's the Christ. Uh, Christ means the anointed one or Messiah. And this was the title of the rescuer king, which the Old Testament promised God would one day send. And thirdly, he's the son of God. Son of God was a title given in the Old Testament to Israel, the people of Israel, and also to Israel's king. But Jesus is the true son of God. So not just the ultimate king, but the eternal son of the father. God become man. On the Pastor Evangelist website it says, When we started Pastor Evangelists, we wanted to show that there is so much more to pastor than meets the eye. And the writer of this account wants to show the same about Jesus, that there is so much more to Jesus than you may have thought so far. If he was just a good man, if he was just a wise teacher, there have been plenty of those. That wouldn't be such great news. But he is so much more, and that is why he is such good news. And so the good news is about Jesus uh, the good news is not a religious system, it's not just a way of life, it's not an organisation, the church, it's not just a set of beliefs. The good news is a person, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Christianity is Christ, and so we need to focus on him, we need to come to him, to believe in him, we need to introduce others to him, to share the good news about him. In Jesus, the rescuer king the world needs, has now come. But that is the good news. He is the good news. Archaeologists have dug up a fascinating inscription in stone at the site of an ancient Greek city in what is now Turkey. And the inscription is dated 9 BC. And it's about the emperor Augustus Caesar. It says that Providence has given us Augustus that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a saviour. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. The emperor was seen as a god and his birthday was described as the beginning of the gospel. Good news for the world. And so significant was it that the inscription announced a new calendar system starting with his birth. And that's why this inscription is called the Priene Calendar Inscription. Now, the identical opening words of Mark's Gospel are surely no coincidence. The good news for our world is not the birth of Caesar Augustus, but the coming of Jesus, the true king, the ruler this world needs. Now, people nowadays don't look to emperors anymore to save them, but some people do look to, to politicians. They pin their hopes on Trump or his successor or whoever. Or those disillusioned with politics perhaps look to tech leaders. I was watching the first two Iron Man films with our kids this past week. Um, Iron Man is about Tony Stark, so a tech genius and billionaire who saves the world. And it's fantasy, but it's actually not that far-fetched. So Elon Musk is a modern-day Tony Stark. 
And in fact, you may have seen that he has this little cameo appearance in Iron Man 2. And the actor Robert Downey Jr., who plays Robert Stark, he says that he used Elon as his role model in the films. Politicians, technology, tech leaders, they make important contributions to our society, but they can't save the world. But Jesus can. He is the good news. But how can we be sure? Why do his claims carry more weight than those of Augustus Caesar? The second witness is the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Those are quotations from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Verse 2 is from Malachi and verse 3 from Isaiah. The Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of a rescuer king. And they gave an exact description of the one who would come. His place of birth, his miracles, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection. And in these verses they reveal that God would send someone to announce his arrival and to prepare people for his coming. That God would send a messenger, a voice in the wilderness. Jesus did not appear like a bolt out of the blue. His coming was the fulfilment of prophecies over hundreds of years in the Old Testament. In the words of the opening line of one hymn by Charles Wesley, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. He was long-expected. Now, Old Testament prophecy and New Testament history make for a very powerful combination. When we feel our faith is flagging, is weak, uh, when we're overcome by doubts, it's worth going back to the witness of Old Testament prophecy. And in these two quotations, it's very striking who is expected. So in Malachi, the messenger prepares the way for the coming of the Lord himself. Verse 2 here is taken from Malachi 3 verse 1. And the very next verse says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In verse 3, the messenger here says, prepare prepare the way for the Lord. So both quotations are about the coming of the Lord God himself, but they are applied here to Jesus. That is the staggering claim at the heart of the good news, that Jesus is not just another prophet, he's not just a wise teacher, but he is the Son of God become man. God himself stepping onto the stage of human history to rescue us. Now as such, he's not just the expected king, but he is the mighty king. And that is what our third witness confirms. Our third witness is John the Baptist. Straight after these Old Testament quotations about the messenger in the wilderness, we read this, verse 4. John appeared, baptising in the wilderness. So the point is that John the Baptist is the messenger sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. The Old Testament ends uh, with God saying in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah was one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. This messenger would be another Elijah. And that explains John the Baptist's unusual wardrobe and diet. So here in verse 6. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. If you wore your underpants over your trousers and you had a yellow S on your top, on your chest, people would immediately identify you as a nutter? No, as Superman. And so John's outfit and diet identified him as the new Elijah that God said that he would send. That was Elijah's outfit. So John was a, a big deal. Uh, Jesus would later say of John that none is greater than John, Luke 7, 30, 38. And John had a huge following. So we read here in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. But listen to his message, verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist didn't big himself up. He was just a signpost pointing to he who is mightier than I. So great was the coming one that, that John didn't consider himself worthy even to untie the straps of his sandals. So even doing the job of a Gentile slave for this mighty one would be too great an honour for John. I was at the big crossroads uh, just north of here one day when some some police motorbikes arrived and they stopped all the traffic and then this fleet of limos drove through with a VIP inside. Well, John the Baptist's role was basically just to stop the traffic for the coming of Jesus. John was an outrider. But imagine how important the VIP would be if the police outrider in the high-vis vest was someone as high-profile as Boris. John got how great Jesus was and is. And I wonder, do we see things as clearly as John did? That Jesus is the mighty one. That we are not worthy even to untie the straps of his sandals. So great is he. If we do get this, then our job, like John's, is simply to point people to Jesus. To be signposts to him. Not promoting ourselves, but promoting him. So John the Baptist wasn't taking selfies with the crowds behind him. He was pointing to Jesus. And he was pointing to the mighty works that Jesus would do. So in verse 4, John was proclaiming, it says, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John baptised people to get them ready for Jesus. But the forgiveness of sins was what Jesus would bring. So John couldn't do that. He couldn't forgive people. He didn't have that power. But Jesus would have. And John could get people wet on the outside, baptising them. 
that inner washing and inner cleansing was what Jesus would bring. So look at verse 8. John says, I have baptised you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament looked forward to the day when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on people, bringing inner cleansing and power to live differently. And that is what Jesus would do. The Christian message is not good advice. It's good news. What's the difference? Well, good advice just says, do this and don't do that. And it crushes us with the weight of impossible demands. The good news says, you can't do it. You've done wrong, but here is forgiveness and here is power to change. And that is good news. Well, the final testimony comes from uh, the very top. It's the witness of God the Father himself. Verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. So Jesus, though he was himself sinless, he was identifying with sinful humanity. He was standing with them in the Jordan River. Now we've had a good few baptisms on the barge over the years, but none of them, none of them have had the three features of this one. Number one, heaven torn open, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening, literally being torn open. Number two, the spirit descending. We read, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse three, uh, number three, sorry, the voice from heaven. Verse 11, and the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. In only one other place in Mark does the Father address Jesus. It's at the Transfiguration in chapter 9 verse 7. And there he says the same thing. This is my beloved son. That is the testimony of God the Father about Jesus, that he is his beloved son. Like Abraham in Genesis 22 with Isaac, your only son whom you love. So God the Father with Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son who has come from the Father. And by sending his Holy Spirit on him, God the Father equips Jesus for his mission and ministry as his servant. So the Father's words at the baptism here echo his words in Isaiah 42 verse 1, where he said this, Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Jesus is that spirit-anointed servant of the Lord. So God the Father testifies that Jesus is his beloved son and faithful servant. Well, when you apply for a job, you get references, don't you, from different people who say nice things about you. Well, the lineup of referees here is pretty impressive. Mark, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and God the Father himself. And what they say about Jesus makes clear 
why he is such good news. He is the long-promised, mighty, divine rescuer king. But why has he come? Well, we've already seen, haven't we, that he will bring forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. But the significance of his coming is even bigger than that. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. After Jesus' baptism, it's very striking, isn't it, that there's no reception, that there's no celebration, dinner, there's no party, but instead we read in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The Spirit drives Jesus out, straight into action, to do battle with the arch-enemy of humanity, with Satan, that is, the devil. The world's problems began when the first people gave in to the devil's temptations in the Garden of Eden. And since then, humanity has been in the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan. But the promise way back in Genesis 3.15 was that someone would one day come to crush the serpent. And in Jesus, that serpent crusher has finally come. As 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came to do battle. He is the strong man who resists the devil's temptations and who will set his captives free. Why doesn't God do something about the evil in the world, people ask? Well, he has. That's why Jesus came, to overthrow Satan and to bring his oppressive rule to an end. Jesus' victory in this first encounter with Satan is the first nail in the coffin of the devil. It's the beginning of the end for Satan and for his rule. And in its place, Jesus will establish the kingdom of God. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Just before the beginning of our Sunday service at 11, there's the countdown clock. It counts down uh, two minutes and then there's a notice saying that the service is about to begin. With the coming of Jesus the King, the clock that has been counting down for centuries gets to zero. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. Well, what is about to happen? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. Ever since the rebellion in the garden, the world has been in a mess. Humanity oppressed by sin and the devil and death. But the Old Testament prophets foretold that one day God would step in to fix things. God's kingdom would come. He would defeat our enemies. He'd get rid of all evil. And he would establish his eternal rule of peace and blessing. Well, at his first press conference here, if you like, Jesus announces that the centuries of waiting are over. And the time has come. And the kingdom of God is about to be established. The new age is about to begin. The stone inscription claimed that the reign of Augustus Caesar would bring in the Golden Age, 
And Jesus says no, that he himself is the king and he will bring in the eternal rule of God. Jesus is the hope for our world. Sometimes uh, we maybe think of what Jesus has come to do purely in terms of personal benefits. He'll bring me forgiveness. He'll give me the Holy Spirit. And those things are wonderfully true. But his agenda is actually much bigger than that. Jesus' coming marks the beginning of change for the whole world. A new order, a new age. The world being, being fixed on a global scale. No more pandemic. No more pandemics, no more brutality, um, no more bushfires, no more, frankly, terrible years. It's good news. But it's good news that demands a response if we are to be part of God's kingdom when Jesus returns. Jesus sums up the response that God commands us to make in two simple commands there in verse 15. It says, he says, repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel. So we need to repent. When John proclaimed his baptism of repentance, people came in verse 5, confessing their sins. To repent means to change our minds and our lives, to turn from what is wrong. But it's not just minor tweaks, it is a fundamental change of direction in life. Imagine a road that has two ends, one end is God's eternal kingdom and the other end is hell. By nature, the Bible says, we are driving towards hell, towards the abyss. And repentance is not just a little tweak of the steering wheel, you know, stopping swearing, stopping gossiping. It is doing a U-turn. It is turning the car right around and heading in the opposite direction. The coming of the kingdom demands that we repent and that we believe the gospel. Believe the good news that Jesus is the promised king. Come to establish God's kingdom. And so we need to trust in him and follow him. Notice it's not either or, it's both and. So it's not repenting without believing and it's not believing without repenting. Both are necessary. We turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. Have you done that? If we've not done that yet, uh, that is what we need to do. And there's a real sense of urgency here, given the time. That Jesus says the time has now been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus could return any day. If we are to be part of the eternal kingdom of God, we need to repent and believe. It's not enough to attend church. It's not enough, enough to try and live a good life or, or get religious or claim to be, be Christian. We need to repent and believe. We need to turn and to trust in Jesus. And if we've done that, we need to keep going in that direction, living lives of repentance and faith. The tense of the verbs here in the Greek indicate that repentance and faith, they're not a one-off act. They're not just something I did at an event some years ago. They are an ongoing and a necessary response, ongoing response to the good news. The good news that Jesus, the King, has come and the kingdom of God is at hand.